I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza, live from San Francisco, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin today on the East Coast. Welcome, Andrew. Carl and John have the morning off to today. A check on the tech rally. The Nasdaq is lower today, the major underperformer, but it is up some 20 percent off of its June lows. As Bank of America says that it's seeing some of the biggest inflows into tech in over a decade. We're going to get right to it. Sima Modi joins us with the Weeks of inflows into stocks led by tech, which saw over $2 billion of buying in the last week. That's the largest amount dating back to 2008, according to Bank of America. The net buyers, the profile of the investor, primarily institutional clients, hedge funds after selling the previous week, whereas private clients of the bank were net sellers. Data shows investors are drawn to large caps, which is consistent with what we've seen in the market over the past few weeks. Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft rebounding considerably from the June low as earnings came in better than expected. Portfolio manager Richard Bernstein says the fact that we've had consistent inflows makes it hard to argue that sentiment is tremendously negative, as some have been arguing, but also puts valuations into focus. Following a bruising first half of the year, the S&P tech sector trading at a forward price to earnings ratio of 19, now above 24 times forward earnings at a time when retail interest is also growing. Guys, back to you. Seema, thank you. Hedge funds uh, also made some big bets in tech in the second quarter, going by this week's 13F filings, which our Leslie Picker has had a close eye on. More on those moves throughout the hour. Andrew, I want to get your take on this rally, what you're hearing on Squawk Box, because certainly on Tech Check, um, we hear a lot from the bears who like to point to the dot-com crash and say that there was actually four bear market rallies of 20% or more. Each one tested new lows. On a day like today, when we have Fed minutes coming up, that feels a bit more prescient. But this rally we've seen over the last six weeks has been quick. It has been steep. Well, the question is, is this real or is this a dead cat bounce? Is it is it a fake out? I think the Fed is going to be the big player here. And interestingly, and we've talked about this with Steve Leisman over and over again, mm-hmm. you have the you have the academic economists and the bank economists really on one side, which is to say they think that the Fed is going to continue to put their foot on the neck of the economy. If that's true, where the market is today is not reality, meaning the market has moved much higher than it otherwise should. For reasons, and maybe the market's right, the market seems to believe that actually inflation is coming down and as a result that the the Fed is going to become a bit more dovish. I think we're going to find out at 2 o'clock today exactly where we are. I don't know exactly where we are, but a little bit more about where we are. And then, of course, we'll find out really in September uh, what the Fed thinks. But as a result, I think we haven't really... I mean, right now, this is all about multiples. We're right now just in a multiple guessing game. What is the right multiple to apply... (laughs) To these tech stocks. That's that's the entire yeah. story. And we're going to start to see what real what earnings really start to look like in the fall. And I think that's also going to change the dynamic of whatever the story turns out to be. Earnings is going to be so key, right? Some of the bears say that that is the next shoe to fall, that demand um, is going to further weaken. Um, But let me play the other side here, Andrew. And um, there are those that are looking at this rally and say, listen, the positioning has become so negative, right? We talked to a lot of fund managers who say that they hold big positions in cash. Look, if you're playing this as a five-year, 10-year story, by default, you'd almost think that a lot of these beaten-down tech stocks will do well. I think the question is, is this a five-year trade or is this a one- or two-month trade? 
Is this a two-week trade? Yeah. What, are, what are people really thinking about when they're making these trades? We're seeing the, we're seeing the memification. The, the meme stock has returned. What does that say <laughs> about where we are, where retail interest is, uh, so given how many of them got rally. burned the last time? Exactly. Yeah, and then so you could say that this is a broader low-quality rally. But, Andrew, at the same time, you know, when we think about earnings going into the next season, I mean, you do have some key leaders, right, like Target and Walmart, Amazon, beyond, um, in a number of different industries, the semis as well, taking their expectations, their guidance down. Some argue that could be a positive as well. Um, anyways, well, we're that's done. the thing. Are they throwing? Are they throwing it all in the kitchen sink last quarter so that everybody, you know, yeah. lowers their expectations and so they beat them on the other side? We've we've seen that movie before. We we certainly have. Um, I mentioned it. Retail e-commerce growth that has been key this week, and it has been a mixed picture. Shares of Target in the red this morning on that huge profit miss. Walmart though, it's up seven percent on the week after strong results and reacceleration in its e-commerce segment. Inflation, of course, a huge challenge here. Even Amazon is seeing an impact, raising seller fees for the holidays to manage through stubborn prices. Here to break it all down, Canvas Ventures general partner Mike Gaffari. Mike, good morning to you. It is great to have you. Um, when we talk about the retailers, Amazon, right, sort of took its medicine earlier this year, billions of dollars in extra costs to get that overcapacity under control, its labor force as well. Um, is this what we're seeing from Target and Walmart to Andrew and my conversation just moments ago? Does this position them and expectations um, put them in a better place for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think so. I think what you're seeing is a shift in the demand curve, right? So you're seeing higher income uh, people buy groceries, which is a big driver for Walmart. You're also seeing the success of Walmart.com online and Walmart e-commerce. I think Target is actually falling behind, as we've seen. And so they've got inventory problems. They're, they're having to do markdowns. They've got profitability problems. While the top line grew, that's sometimes easier in an inflationary environment uh, where transaction sizes are going up anyway. So I think Walmart is well poised. Target's a question mark. I'm still a long-term Amazon believer, but to Andrew's point earlier, I do think you know is this a dead cap bounce for tech is is a looming question. Yeah, Walmart's a unique case. It's a hybrid. You know, in previous recessions, Walmart's done well because it was pure retail. Mm -hmm. Now it's this hybrid retail tech company. So it'll be interesting how it plays out. Well, isn't it so fascinating, too, that Walmart is moving upstream while Amazon is kind of moving downstream? Um, yeah. And they both have so much pricing power. Look at what Amazon has announced for the upcoming holiday season. They're going to be charging their merchants more. Um, what does that mean for that proposition, especially competition? I mean, we don't talk about it as much anymore because Shopify is in such a different position. But this does add fuel, right, for merchants who have already been trying to do so to diversify their sales more away from, from Amazon. Yeah, so to catch everybody up, as you mentioned, Amazon's been raising seller fees. They just made a big announcement. And on the one hand, I think you're going to see some performative uh, complaints and, hey, we have to get off Amazon. And on the margin, this will drive people to other channels like Walmart. If a, if a retailer hasn't already been or a DDC brand wasn't already on Walmart, this is going to push them in that direction. But at the end of the day, Amazon's a price maker, not a price taker here. Uh, everyone has to be on Amazon. It's the biggest, you know, everything store in the world. Um, and so all that groundwork they've laid now for decades is really paying off. Um, so you're going to see more noise about this. And I wouldn't be surprised that Amazon in subsequent seasons gets more aggressive on pricing with sellers because it has that leverage and it can. But I've thought for years, 
if you're a, a direct D2C retailer or you're selling something online, you'd be crazy not to diversify off Amazon, even while Amazon right. you know, is going to continue to squeeze. Mike, but, but to, to the point of, and this is a regulatory point, and it goes to the, the, yeah. the Deidre's point about competition, I think there's a balance here of raising price and what that means to the larger sort of a dialogue, national conversation about Amazon. So how quickly do you think and how fast can they do that? And also, do you think that's, that Shopify and others, Walmart, can pick up the slack? Is there enough competition in this market or not? I think there is enough competition, I think, between Walmart, so many other channels. Plus, everyone can just light up their own direct channel. And you've got the Shopify option, as you pointed out. I think the reality is Amazon has built a big collection of eyeballs. And that's hard to create. I think it's very different than, let's say, the Google story, right? Where Google is just running all these ads and pushing everybody down and making it very difficult. I think Amazon, people are going there because they want to and they have plenty of other options. So I don't know that regulatory could really do much in the Amazon situation, where it might in other areas of tech. Well, you do have questions about its private label products. Uh, Maybe a discussion for another time. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Mike Afari. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, Deidre, we got to talk Elon Musk this morning because uh, he's making another joke on Twitter. The Tesla CEO tweeting yesterday evening that he planned to buy the British soccer club Manchester United before quickly walking it back and tweeting that it was, quote, a long running joke on Twitter. That, of course, didn't stop investor interest. Man U, the publicly traded stock linked to the team jumping as much as 17 percent overnight. Um, His uh, his just joking uh, maybe didn't come soon enough in fact, because uh, clearly the stock moved. And I wonder whether, like so many other people, I, I, I'm not sure everybody knew that Man U was a publicly traded company. So I don't know when he, when he wrote <laughs> that, whether he thought to himself, am I going to actually move stocks? If he did, um, you know, what should the SEC be thinking? Should they be thinking anything? Is a joke a joke? Is there something more to it? I mean, that was my first thought as well. Did he actually know that Man U was a public company? But at the same time, Andrew, this is a smart guy. Does he do anything without intention? Um, what is that intention? I don't think that is clear exactly. But um, bizarrely, just- it's worth noting there were call options that were that were bought literally within like 48 right. hours before this. And so I don't know who those people are. Did they know this? You know, I think a lot of people, and I'm not suggesting this necessarily, but I think people do send Elon lots of things suggesting he tweet them out. Um, I don't know if you get caught up in that. Hard right, to know he read something. Without, without. He read something and decided to tweet this subconsciously. I mean, it's not a great argument for the SEC, though, is that, I mean, everything that we're talking about kind of adds fodder when he's already under so much scrutiny. Yep. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the bears are out. They're coming for software. More on the key names to buy or avoid here after the break. Tech Check is just getting started. It is whale watching week on Tech Check. Stanley Druckenmiller's family office slashing positions across some of the biggest names in tech, liquidating its nearly $200 million stake in Amazon, cutting back on Microsoft by more than 25 percent, but adding new holdings across cybersecurity and cloud, including Datadog, Palo Alto Networks and CrowdStrike. It's top holding. Take a look at South Korean e-commerce company Coupang. Drunken Miller keeping a stake worth roughly $248 million. Year to date, Andrew, it's down 40%. Um, it's had a good last few weeks with this rally. You know who's selling a lot of Coupang? Its biggest shareholders, SoftBank. Masasan has chosen to liquidate at least some of that position. 
It's, it's a fascinating company. I actually visited it many years ago uh, in South Korea, and they, they are like Amazon on steroids in terms of what they do. In fact, for a very long time, people uh, speculated that they would be a takeover target uh, for the likes mm. of an Amazon. The real question is, in terms of their growth, given the footprint, right, they are, they are based there, and that's, that's pretty much what the business is. How quickly can they grow? And that's, I think, a real question, uh, given where the valuations were uh, when they came public. Absolutely. And this is sort of an Asian company, e-commerce, of course, but more of a super app than some of the e-commerce companies that we know here. It's had a little bit more success. So it does have that angle as well. Right, Andrew? Absolutely. No, and it's, I will say it's fascinating because they, you know, soup to nuts, manage effectively not just the retail component, meaning the website. They're doing the delivery piece of this as well. As yeah. a result of doing the delivery piece, they're able to do the returns. I mean, it, it is a full, almost white glove situation. Full stack. It's hard to replicate just about in any other place, though, because one of the reasons it, it, it works on a unit economics basis is the fact that, uh, you know, Seoul is such a, a dense population. They have people who literally are assigned to buildings because of the thousands of people who live in those buildings. And they just go up and down and up and down those buildings. It, it's a different dynamic in a place like the United States. Very hard to see uh, whether that model could work here. And boy, you know, people talk about, you know, one hour delivery. They can do it there in, in an amazing way. <laughs> they can actually do it without burning through hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Right. There's a lot of companies Absolutely. here that are trying to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> Meantime, uh, I want to talk about some billionaires that uh, may like software here. City sure doesn't. Uh, opening a negative catalyst call on Snowflake ahead of results there and downgrading Zoom to a sell. The analyst behind those calls is Tyler Reck. He joins us right now. What do you think? What do you think? I mean, we could talk about those names, which I want to talk about. But before we even get there, what do you think of sort of the broad move that we've been seeing? Yeah, good morning, Andrew. So it's interesting. I mean, the software sector had a very, one of the toughest starts of the year, really, in, in recent memory. Um, you saw Microsoft and ServiceNow report numbers that were, you know, mixed at best. I think we, we, we were of the view that there was further downside risk to estimates, but you've seen the sector really rebound from uh, low levels seen in, in June and July. Um, you know, our near-term view is that the sector may have rebounded a little too hard and, and too fast especially as we're getting into some large prints next week uh, with Salesforce, Zoom, Snowflake, uh, and, and more to come. So uh, we, we do see some near-term downside to, to some of these stocks, such as Snowflake and Zoom, hence our negative calls. So let's talk about those negative calls. Is this a multiple story for you, or is this just going to be a bad earnings story, and then you want to apply a much lower multiple to it? Yeah, so I'll start off on Snowflake. I think our concern on Snowflake is that there is a tactically difficult setup uh, for, for next week. So we think there's risk that the company will deliver a smaller beat than they typically do in the quarter and may cut the outlook for uh, revenue for the rest of the year. Uh, this is a usage model, meaning that it is not a SaaS subscription model. So yeah. customers pulling back on spending, Snowflake will see that immediately in their results. And so we just think there's more of a cyclical uh, sensitivity at Snowflake. And for a company that's still trading at about 20 times revenue, if there is downside risk to numbers, we do think that the stock can go lower in the near term. Longer term, we think it's a great company. Uh, we like what they're doing in data sharing and uh, think they're well positioned in terms of building this ecosystem. Uh, but uh, near term, we're, we're tactically cautious. Uh, Zoom is a bit of a different story. I think 
Our concern, we, we've always seen a bit of a challenging path out of the pandemic for this company. I think what's changed over the last 90 days, number one, the stock has rebounded uh, over 40% from, from recent mm-hmm. lows. Uh, they have almost 50% exposure to SMB or individual customers. And so we see risk that that business starts to decline next year. If you look at the way the street is modeling revenue for next year, it actually has it growing faster than it is in these coming quarters. So we, do, we see downside risk to numbers. We also see downside risk to margins as the company continues to invest. And yeah. the, the online business is very profitable. So that as that goes away, um, we think there's there's downside risk to margins as well. So Tyler, Zoom and Snowflake, a number of other the, you know previously really hot software companies that have come public over the last few years, they're known as this category best of breed that haven't been tested in an economic downturn. Um, and maybe before there was some thought that, especially during the pandemic, enterprises were going to continue to buy their software. That's kind of being flipped around now. And I wonder, what do you think? How vulnerable are they, especially when you have bigger players like Microsoft and Google better able to bundle these products together and compete with a Zoom and a Snowflake? Yeah, so we, th- we see the competitive pressure uh, a lot stronger for Zoom. I mean, Microsoft has Teams, which I would still argue Zoom is a better uh, video product. I am a uh, happy Zoom user here at City. I think the challenge- right, more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it costs more. And I think the challenge is where is that incremental growth, right? I think the people at large companies who, who have Zoom are, are generally happy with it. But uh, if you got through the last two years without a Zoom contract, why well, do you need it now? Zoom is. So, so let me uh, ask you this, Tyler. Yeah. Would, it, would it have been different then if Zoom had been able to acquire Five9, right? The whole proposition was turning it into this unified communications platform. But now it kind of just looks like a one trick pony, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were positive on that uh, acquisition. I think call center is a natural adjacency. It's it's stickier. You see companies like Nice or Five Nine. They're certainly holding up better uh, than than Zoom post pandemic. They haven't seen as as big of a slowdown. So that that was unfortunate that that deal didn't go through. And Zoom is clearly trying to build their own contact center now, kind of back to square one. But their early days, I think it's a really tough market to get right, uh, and it's going to be a number of years if they're even successful. Okay, Tyler, uh, thank you. Perhaps some hard reality uh, for Snowflake and Zoom. We will see. Uh, Look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Mm -hmm. Dee? Andrew, you mentioned this. Meme Stock Mania, it is back, at least when it comes to Bed Bath & Beyond, now up almost 100% this week. It's almost doubled. It's only Wednesday. That story is next. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Here's what's happening right now. Retail sales unchanged in July, but the picture may be slightly brighter than that number implies when auto sales are subtracted. Sales were up 0.4%. That's more than economists had been predicting. As for individual retailer results out today, they are mixed. Target had a big bottom line miss for the second quarter as it cleared out excess inventory at bargain prices. Lowe's, TJX, better than expected profit there. Demand for mortgages fell to a 22-year low last week. That's according to the latest figures from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Home buyers pulling back as rates rise and prices remain stubbornly high. And those higher rates are dampening, of course, refinancing activity. Why would you? The Food and Drug Administration has approved the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids. The government estimates that consumers may save about $2,800 per pair. 
They'll be able to buy them without a prescription or a medical exam. The FDA says about 30 million adults could benefit from hearing aids, but only about 20% actually use them. And the reason is often the cost. Back to you all. Andrew? Tyler, thank you for that. Uh, meantime, we're going to talk about this meme stock uh, trading mania. Seems to have come back uh, this month with names like Bed Bath & Beyond up almost 450% since the first. CBC Pro out with a new screen trying to catch the next meme name, pulling out any S&P 1500 stocks above a billion dollars in market cap that are 50% off their highs and have at least 10% short interest. Tech names from the list, well, Etsy and Dish Networks, both around 60% off their highs with 11% short interest. I don't get it. I don't understand what is happening uh, with these meme stocks, D. I, it, I just, it, I'm baffled. Did you ever? I, I thought that some- Is it supposed no, to make No, but I sense? thought that people, I thought that it, it didn't make sense the first time. I don't think it makes sense <laughs> now, but I thought that folks had sort of learned their lesson the first time. I thought they were using, I mean, we were told they were using stimulus checks and the like to do it. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, a lot of folks lost. And so I sort of think to myself, who are these people? Where does the money come from? Where does the money come from? But let me ask you this, Andrew. Okay, it still doesn't make a lot of sense. However, does it make sense to an Adam Aaron who has been able to really use it to his advantage and raise some $2 billion? What surprises me, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, that more CEOs aren't using this playbook. Well, I mean, I think there's a question about using this playbook. Look, he has used this as successfully as a CEO can. At the same time, it has been, and I know we can debate this, was it at the expense of his shareholders or not? I mean, there's a big dilution factor here. You could also argue on the other side that if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't be alive today. So it, it's yeah. a complicated story. Do, do the shareholders fully understand all the ramifications of what's happening? That's the part that, that worries me. Well, they're cheering him on, the apes at least. By the way, number one on that list on that CNBC screener is a company called Trupanion, a pet insurance company, nearly 50 percent off of its recent high, nearly 20 percent of its float is short. Uh, I can see it. Pet insurance kind of has a Ryan Cohen. Um, I don't know. I mean, are you there? I mean, can you see Bed Bath & Beyond at 60 to 80 bucks? I mean, Ryan Cohen's course, buying options at those not. prices. But that's but we look at fundamentals, Andrew. We're not, you know, chasing this momentum and looking for the secret sort of the Easter eggs in it. So I don't know. We're the wrong, wrong audience, I suppose. We're going to stick, though, with the mean trade. Maybe someone else can make sense of it for us, Andrew. Uh, we're going to bring in Wall Street Journal reporter Gunjan Banerjee. Uh, let's start there. Gunjan, what is going on? Can you understand it any better than we are? Look, it seems like the meme stocks are back, at least for now. You know, with, with Bed Bath & Beyond, we're seeing the struggling retailer. It's burning cash. Its bonds are trading at distressed levels. Yet take a look at what's going on with the stock, with the options. Yesterday, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond calls were some of the most popular options in the entire market behind options tied to spy. So we are seeing something that's reminiscent a little bit, of course, of, of last year's meme mania. Yeah. So what does it tell us, Gunjan, then? Let's be practical about this. What does this tell us about the broader rally when we've seen the Nasdaq come back some 20 percent? Andrew and I were talking about it a little earlier. These are low quality names. Does that make it a low quality rally? 
You know, I'm not sure if it makes it a low quality rally because broadly we have seen some of those recession fears ease lately um, in terms of this rally. But I would like to point out that we've seen the memes come back from time to time. We saw that in the first, at the end of the first quarter, when the broader market started rallying, we saw the memes come back a little bit. Um, but this does tell us that speculation is not gone from the market. We saw retail purchases of options hit the highest level since April recently. Obviously, these meme stocks are going crazy again. Um, for all the gloom and doom that we started this year with and that we saw for a lot of the year, people are still willing to jump in and they're willing uh, to speculate. Right. I hate to be too paternalistic <laughs> about the situation. How much of this is really the retail trade? versus how much of this is the institutional trade riding on the back or perhaps even taking advantage of the retail trade? So what's really interesting is that I saw some data showing that individual investors' purchases of Bed Bath & Beyond recently surpassed levels that we saw in 2021, which kind of shocked me because when we think about the meme stocks coming back, I think broadly speaking, activity has been below levels that we saw last year. Um, and, and at first, at least, it seemed like this isn't a redo of GameStop. But at least with Bed Bath & Beyond, we are seeing purchases surpass those levels, though I'm sure institutional investors are also in the mix. I wish we could figure this out, but how many are, how many of the traders, retail or otherwise, that are putting on this trade, do you think were the same folks putting on the trade a year, year and a half ago at this point? Or do we think this is a new, a new group, a new gang? One thing that I think is really, really important to keep in mind is that things have changed since early last year. Even when you look at Wall Street bets, you know, people I, I was speaking with earlier this year said, a lot of the veteran traders have left Wall Street bets. So this this cast of retail investors, it has evolved. And I think it's tough to paint it with a broad brush. And I would be reluctant to say, hey, it's the exact same people. Though I do think um, a lot of professional investors kind of thought retail is mm -hmm. going to you know, flee the market as soon as things get tough. It doesn't look like they've done that. A lot of retail investors have hung around. We recently saw retail investors make up around 12% of equities trading. Right. And Andrew, I'm kind of picking up because I saw your conversation this morning with Tasty Trade founder Tom uh, Sosnoff, and uh, yep. he was talking sort of about the bigger picture here. And, and it's a good thing when people get excited about finance. And Gunjan, you were talking about, you know, whether these are the same people that we saw last year. Is that a good thing? Should they have moved to more sophisticated trading? What does that tell us about the retail investor, especially the one that has come into the market over the last few years? If there's anything that I've learned covering retail investing the past two years, it's that you really cannot paint them with a broad brush. Yeah. You know, you have a lot of retail investors who are buy and hold. They're buying and holding index funds and they didn't sell during during the tumult that we saw, even while some professional right. investors seem to be selling. And then you have the retail traders who are playing in options, playing in playing in mean stocks. So I think it's important for all of us kind of looking into this to keep in mind that they're not all the same. I guess the, the question that I wonder about, and I'm on uh, you know, Wall Street Bets and otherwise looking at people talking about Bed Bath, I just don't know, do people realize, this, this, is, a, this is a company who has not earned a profit, at least that I can tell, since basically 2018, and has something like $3 billion of debt. So I just, I, don't, I, I sort of don't understand the calculus, and I don't also understand the calculus on, on, on Ryan's side in terms of what, why, he, why he would buy those options. I know they're cheap. They're, they're, you know, and it's a 
big bet. But what do you what do you think's behind this? Look, I think the calculus of fundamentally the business is doing well, so the stock can't skyrocket. That hasn't worked out. When you and Deirdre were talking about, you know, the meme playbook of issuing shares to kind of capture this momentum, that's actually helped companies fundamentally. That's helped them improve their businesses. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. We're seeing, you know, Adam Aaron do that. And and that has helped his business during the pandemic. And it has helped the past few years was tapping into the retail enthusiasm about um, about his stock. It's also made some questionable uh, acquisitions. Uh, by the way, Baird putting its price target for BBBY $4 uh, kind of says a lot. The retail investor versus Wall Street. Gunjen, thanks so much for being with us, as always. Meanwhile, thanks the whales are making some big bets. We've been talking about it and sales, of course. Uh, chip stocks as well this quarter. Christina Parts and Nevelis joins me here at One Market with more. Christina, welcome. It's great to have you on set. I know. I'm so excited to be sitting next to you. But uh, let's talk about these big players because they are dumping the chips. You've got the latest 13F filings that show that popular semiconductor names are falling out of favor with Micron taking most of that brunt or taking most of that hit. David Tepper's hedge fund, Appaloosa, dropped its Micron position by 73%. Bopost dropped it by 12%. David Einhorn's Greenlight completely dissolved its stake in Intel. You also have Bopost that also dropped its Intel stake by 47%. Intel stock is down, what, about four, uh, 2% today. And only one of the only stocks right now, the tech stocks on the NASDAQ 100, that hasn't jumped higher since the June bottom. Uh, KOTU slashed its NVIDIA holding by 92%. Recall both NVIDIA as well as Qualcomm have issued weaker forecasts going forward, but not everyone is saying goodbye. The Soros Fund almost doubled its stake in Qualcomm, and Viking Global picked up over a million shares in a micron. So. I'm glad you bring up the June bottom because it is remarkable um, what we've seen since then. And Andrew, this has already been one of the largest and sharpest semi-corrections that we've seen in over a decade. So these 13Fs, they're backwards looking, um, but always the question, where do these semis go now? Well, I want to see, I want to see the 13Fs next quarter because yeah. I think they may be very different than where, what, what we're looking at right now. We'll see. Uh, meantime, we should tell everybody the Deutsche Bank pressing pause on take two downgrading the name to neutral as they say the stock's range bound with a few positive catalysts ahead, at least in the near term. More market action after the break. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. Welcome back to uh, Tech Check. One key focus for streaming companies this quarter, well, profitability and yep, fast. Julia Borston joins us with the breakdown. Julia. Well, Andrew, this week has been packed by news of media companies and investors showing a newfound focus on their streaming services profitability. Warner Brothers Discovery's HBO, HBO Max division just yesterday laying off 70 employees. That's 14% of its workforce as the company restructures, reducing redundancies and unscripted programming, along with cuts in scripted children's and family content, casting and acquisitions. This all comes as CEO David Zaslav looks for $3 billion in cost cuts. This comes after Paramount announced its partnership with Walmart to distribute its streaming service. Sources tell me this will be a profitable way for Paramount Plus to grow its subscriber base and hit its targets. 
And all of this comes as 13F filings show investors moving into media. Berkshire boosting its position in Paramount Global. Appaloosa initiated small positions in Netflix and Disney. And of course, Dan Loeb's third point bought a new stake in Disney, pushing the company to cut costs in that letter we discussed. Now, just yesterday, Fubo TV laid out its plan to cut costs and become profitable by 2025. That stock, it jumped 45% yesterday. It is down another 11% today. It's hard to tell how much all of these moves are driven by meme traders rather than the company's fundamentals. About a third of Fubo's float is short interest, which does attract meme traders targeting short sellers. And yesterday was Fubo's highest volume day on record, another sign of attention from meme traders, which I know you've been talking about during this show. Now, this all comes at a time as the streamers are working to position themselves to consumers as must-haves. And to fight for subscribers, there are, of course, concerns that consumers just won't want to pay for as many services as they once did. Guys? Julia, here's the the piece I don't understand. There has been a lot more movement by institutional investors into these names. Some who I think are maybe thinking these are value plays. I mean, Warren Buffett, obviously, one of the great value investors over time. But clearly, we're in a moment. The competition is is not getting any less anytime soon, right? Yeah, the competition's not getting less, but we have seen this consolidation, right? So when it comes to Warner Brothers Discovery, they've announced they will be merging their streaming services and coming to market with one combined service that many say really has a shot at being one of the few, maybe people will subscribe to three, one of the few new mini bundles that people are going to be subscribing to. So I think there's a sense that we're in this new phase. It's streaming 2.0. It's all about these new smaller bundles that are not quite like a pay TV bundle, but you're going to be getting more than one service and the companies behind them are going to try to figure out what they could do to cut down on extraneous costs and figure out how to make sure that they keep you hooked, that you don't just drop the service after your favorite show is done. Yeah, Julia, as you talk about this, there's so many different ideas to get to better profitability um, or new paths like ad supported models. Why is no one talking about decreased content spend or is it in the conversation? I certainly haven't heard it, but at some point, is that on the table? You know, Dee, they have been talking about it. I mean, I think it's taken a backseat to some of these other conversations. But, you know, it was really interesting hearing Bob Chapek tell me that he didn't want to buy those cricket rights because it was just not financially viable. It didn't make sense. And they're going to be very careful about how they make their their decisions about what rights are worth it. We heard it from Fubo TV yesterday, you know, saying we're only going to be investing the sports rights that we know will drive value um, for the company and for their consumers. I think across the board. We're hearing companies say, yes, we're going to be investing in content, but doing it a little bit more carefully. I mean, look, we just saw Warner Brothers, Warner Discovery decide to not release that um, that Batgirl movie. That would have required more money, more investment in that content for them to release it. But they were willing to pull the plug. Those are good points. We'll see what happens when the NFL Sunday ticket comes up. I think that could maybe turn that on its head, though. A lot of folks willing to pay a lot for that. Julia, thank you. Meanwhile, Wall Street's back king facing a shrinking empire. More on that story as deals in the space grind to a halt. That's later this hour. We are back in just two. 
Shares of Cisco are on the move just hours from reporting results as investors look for the latest read on potentially slowing tech demand. Frank Holland joins us with more on what to expect. Frank. Hey there, Deirdre. Uh, Cisco shares are down nearly 8% since last earnings where the company missed on revenue and they just dramatically reduced guidance, citing the war in Ukraine and COVID lockdowns in China that impacted its supply chain both as major headwinds. Cisco guidance putting revenue at about a billion dollars below what the street was expecting at the, for the quarter at that time. You can now see the street has adjusted and is now expecting a 3% decline in revenue and EPS for Q4. So the big question in this report will be forward guidance, because China is still in the process of reopening. And there are questions about if the backlog Cisco has will actually translate into higher revenues going forward. According to FactSet, 25 analysts covered the stock with a mean price target of 52.09 a share. That's just about a 12 percent move to the upside from where it's trading right now. Ten analysts have Cisco as overweight or a buy. The rest is hold. So generally some pretty positive sentiment. The major thing to watch in this report, along with the guidance, is commentary on supply chain and the ability to source components. With rising competitors, Juniper and Arista, there are a lot of questions growing about Cisco's ability to maintain its market share. Deirdre, back over to you. Frank, thank you. And I know two of your traders today on the halftime are in Cisco. We'll hear from them. That's just about 10 minutes away. Plus, tomorrow, Cisco chairman and CEO Chuck Robbins will be on Squawk on the Street. You don't want to miss that. Andrew, he's always a great interview. Very candid. We will find out what's actually really going on in this business. Uh, you always hear it from him, uh, pretty direct, and oftentimes a, a great sort of signal one way or the other about where the economy really lies. As we head to a break, though, want to get a gut check on VMware. Billionaire investor John Paulson making a big bet on the company. His fund snapping up half a million shares worth nearly $57 million as of the end of Q2. Shares of VMware powering higher by 20% over the past three months and now positive for the year. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. The king of SPACs apparently has gone silent. Chamath Palihapitiya, whose SPAC mergers caused an uproar back in 2020 2021, quietly requesting to push back the proposed merger deadlines for his two outstanding SPACs, including his billion-dollar-plus IPOF. Now, Palihapitiya hasn't spoken out about the deadline push, and in fact, hasn't tweeted anything about the SPAC market since April 2nd, when he compared their performance to traditional IPOs. The SPAC market has drastically changed uh, since he was quoting Jay-Z and calling himself the business man. Now, with the uh, exception of uh, MP Materials, all of Polyapatia's SPAC and pipe deals have gone south since their mergers. Virgin Galactic down roughly 40 percent, SoFi down more than 60, Outdoor and Clover Health down about 80 percent in investor interest continuing to plummet last month, the first time in five years that SPACs raised zero. That's a big, big bagel there uh, of uh, no funding, that according to DealLogic. So I don't know. I don't know, D. What do you think here? <laughs> you know, I was interested in your thoughts. You were so early to this, Andrew. I remember that interview you had with Chamath Paul and asking him some tough, tough questions about the fees that he was earning. I would say that he has gone quiet on the SPAC front, uh, but he is still talking weekly to our friend Jason Calacanis on the All In Pod. And the latest episode, I thought it was interesting. They were talking about Masa-san's losses, the Vision Fund. Um, and Chamath said essentially that he keeps to, he gets to keep swinging. It's hard to put that much money to work. I could kind of sense that, you know, maybe that was a proxy for what he's doing as well. 
Interesting here too, Andrew, he said that the way the Vision Fund is structured, and we know this well, there's actually downside protection for the LPs, which is smart. They essentially earn a coupon that SoftBank has right. to pay. There wasn't a lot of protection for the retail investors in his SPAC frenzy. Well, that, that's the thing. Look, I, there's two issues here. One is the macro environment that's hit everybody. And so may, maybe you can have sympathy for everybody across the board. My issue with SPACs, and it was never with Chamath personally, it was with the structure of these SPACs, yeah. which is to say that the sponsor, to me, never had the full alignment with the retail investor yeah. the way I think some retail investors thought that they did, which is to say that it was possible for a sponsor to sell out of uh, the SPAC, to make money on the SPAC before a retailer, uh, a retail investor might otherwise be able to, and especially given the, the multi-year expectations, the terms, of, the terms of the projections that were put out, yes. that you could be long gone before those projections ever became real or, in this yeah. case, not real. And it made it seem like they were going to hold on to these companies for a long time because they were selling them on those long-term projections. Right. Very different than a traditional IPO where you have to look at past projections. You can't make the same kind of um, but what was so targets. Inter- what, was so, what was so interesting about the SPAC moment was, and this goes to the retail investors, so many people saying, this is our opportunity. Let us have yeah. a chance at the lottery ticket. This is our version of venture capital. Isn't it great that these companies are coming public? <laughs> and, and there and have, may, and there maybe have been a few good companies. To be the case, but, right. Look at Iron that's, Source, that's right? That's a conundrum. Now being acquired by Unity, this was a pretty good company, but actually its valuation had been lowered so much because of the kind of stink around the SPAC names. Um, anyways, we could talk about this forever, but I also wanted to talk, Andrew, about Adam Newman. You did some great reporting earlier this week, um, raising money, no small check, $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz, his new company, Flow, now valued at a billion. I need to ask you, what do you make of the troll, what am I calling it, the troll theory that this was basically strategic positioning for Andreessen um, and its main audience is founders. So this is kind of sticking it to the media and telling its audience of founders, many here in the Bay Area, that it's going to support bold moves. Look, I don't think that that's a wrong view. I don't think that Mark Andreessen is buying into this company and joining the board just to troll uh, the public or those. But he definitely has a message for the founder, you know, to the world of founders and entrepreneurs that he believes in them and wants to be a supporter of them. And I think in this case, uh, you know, and we will see whether it's for better or worse, genuinely believes that this particular idea and Adam Newman yeah. and, and the lessons that he may have learned uh, from before are going to uh, benefit them in the future. It's a big check, though. Biggest ever. Big check. Anyways, if you're hungry for Tech Check on the go, you missed any of this, follow, subscribe to our podcast, listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. We're back in a moment. One more thing before we go. Embattled crypto lender Celsius trying to raise cash any way it can or face a shutdown in October. Kate Rooney, you have been watching the court hearing very closely. Yeah, that's right, D. Yesterday's court hearing outlined pretty bleak finances for Celsius and a controversial plan to restructure. The lender has a $2.8 billion hole on its balance sheet. It owes a lot more cash than it has on hand. And according to its lawyers, Celsius will run out of money by October. It's set to be in the red by about $40 million at that point. Lawyers representing Celsius say it has some options, though. The company has, quote, multiple offers outstanding with several more likely to come in. This could be some sort of bankruptcy loan or financing package that's uh, usually in exchange for a high-ranking claim 
to assets if the company defaults. And those in the industry I'm talking to, though, really push back on the idea that Celsius could ever run a consumer-facing business again, where he takes those deposits. They've lost customer and regulators' trust. That may be why Celsius is now focusing on its in-house mining business. At one point, Celsius was looking to take that public, and lawyers say right now it isn't profitable, but it is still in the capital-intensive stages, still building that out. The judge did express some concern about that, but said he approved a motion to let Celsius sell some of the Bitcoin it gets through mining and keep building that business. Kate Rooney, thank you. And Andrew, thank you for hosting with me today. Let's do it again soon. Markets are lower ahead of those Fed minutes. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.